Thanks for pressing play. Most people want to be welcoming of others and believe in equality for all human beings. But we're all a little biased. And the truth is, we can all be at least a little racist. On this episode, we go deep on bias. Why do human beings have this bias? Where does bias come from? Have people always been biased? When did racism, as we understand it today, start? How can we overcome our own biases and make our lives and the world a different place? Our guest today is best-selling author Jessica Nordell, and she's written a spectacular book called The End of Bias, A Beginning, The Science and Practice of Overcoming Unconscious Bias. Uh, New York Times number one bestseller Adam Grant says that her book is a breakthrough. The Guardian said it is thoughtful and rousing. And Jessica's book has won a boatload of awards, including being named a best book of the year by the World Economic Forum. What you're about to experience is a real different dialogue about what it really takes to end bias. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and man, are we glad that you are here. Now, our friends at Hallow App are the world's first real relationship network. We all know that social media algorithms manipulate what we see and have been proven to be detrimental to people and our society. Well, on Hallow App, there are no ads, no bots, no likes, no trolls, no followers, no algorithms, no influencers, no censorship, no photo filters, no feed fatigue, no misinformation, and no echo chambers. That's because on Hallow App, it's your real life with your real friends. So check out H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com today or search Hallow App on your phone's app store of choice. Now, as Joe Ramon said, hey-ho, let's go. So first of all, Jessica, uh, welcome and thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I have been waiting to have this conversation with you for probably, I don't know, 40 years. So I want you to know <laughs> I come with much, <laughs> much anticipation. And actually, since I started in podcasting, Jessica, I said, I, I got to find somebody who's written a book that explains why racism exists. Because if you assume that human, the human condition, so to speak, evolved the way that it is for evolutionary purposes, then there must be some purpose served by bias and racism. And so, A, let's maybe start there. Is that correct? Racism exists because it serves some purpose for humanity. Is that, is that a true statement? I mean, racism certainly emerged because it had a very specific social, political and economic purpose, which was to enable the existence of chattel slavery. I mean, before the emergence of the slave trade being located in Africa, most slaves came from Asia, from sort of Central Asia, sort of the uh, Ural Mountain area, the Caucasus. And when Istanbul, Constantinople was no longer a, a source of the slave 
uh, was sort of a source of people that could be enslaved, the slave trade shifted to focus on Africa. And in order to justify and sort of perpetuate the existence of that inhumane, you know, what we would look at now as a criminal, criminally inhumane enterprise, racism had to exist as a as a way to justify it. Because if, you know, if a group of people are seen as less than, as, you know, lower on a social hierarchy, then it's much easier to justify that kind of inhumane behavior. So I would say, yes, absolutely. I don't know. This is probably not exactly what you meant when you said, does it have an evolutionary purpose? But absolutely, it had a very strong, you know, economic, social, political purpose. And what year, help me uh, situate me, what year are we talking about here when when this sh- this shifts? 1454, I want to say. But I, I should double check that. Okay. <laughs> okay, but, but maybe 1400s. 13, 1400, somewhere in there. And so if my research is right, Homo sapiens as we understand them today, and there's a lot of debate about this, of course, but best I can tell, we have been around uh, for about 130,000 years. That's what I think is the number. Does that number sound about right to you? Homo sapiens, human beings as we understand them today? Yes. Uh, many. Yes. Tens of thousands of years. Absolutely. Yes. So much past uh, the 1400s. Mm-hmm. So what was, was there racism 130,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago? Or does it really... St- start with the need to have the, and I put needs in horrible air quotes, the need to have slave labor? Well, you know, it's a, it's a really good question. And I'm really glad you're answering because this was one of my questions. As I was working on this book, I was really trying to figure out like, what is the origin of these toxic ideas that we've inherited? You know, the superiority of men over women, the superiority of the white quote unquote race over other quote unquote races. You had me until you said that men weren't superior to women. I mean, come on. Isn't it obvious? <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting. So, you know, when I was looking for the origin of these ideas, I felt like I was looking for like the the original abscess, you know, looking at a bloodstream infection and trying to find the original abscess. Like, where did it come from? And what I found looking into... Egyptology, Assyriology, you know, I spoke with many archaeologists about what, how people related to each other in ancient times. And what I learned is that in ancient Egypt, for instance, as one kind of ancient civilization we can look at, there is no evidence of skin color prejudice. We don't see it in the archaeological research, in, in the findings. And in fact, what we see is intermingling of people from different parts of the African continent. You can see it in like the intermingling of pottery, different kinds of pottery from different parts of the continent. We see evidence that in ancient Egypt, if you spoke Egyptian, if you practiced cultural, you know, the customs of the Egyptians, you were ethnically Egyptian. So there wasn't this sense of sort of skin color hierarchy. And in fact, there's also evidence that people from the area now known as South Sudan, who were then known as who we think of as Nubians, would rise to the very highest levels of the Egyptian political administration. And we can see this in, you know, tomb excavations. And so that's just like one example of a time that existed before contemporary racism. 
which I think helps show that it's, you know, it's an invention. It, it, it emerged at a specific time for a specific purpose. That's so fascinating. I've been waiting very many decades for somebody to say that to me. And what about male-female? Is there evidence that, uh, you know, in your work, you talk about studying how men were buried versus women were buried to try to figure out at certain points in time, is there archaeological evidence of feminism, maleism, whateverism <laughs> there? Yeah, you know, that's a good question, too. What, as best as I can understand, patriarchy predates the written record. In other words, the <laughs> the position of men above women is really old. It goes, you know, it 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 by the time we have the written record, we have evidence of patriarchal relations. But we do know, for instance, that in like ancient Mesopotamia, women had an, an association with divinity. So the the ancient Babylonian cities of Uruk and Babylon were were protected by a goddess, the goddess Inanna, the goddess of sexuality and war. So there was a sense of, you know, women being associated with authority, with leadership, with power in a way that has, you know, eroded over time. But it's it's hard to actually it's hard to find the origin of patriarchy because by the time we have writing, it, it's already there. Men are doing the writing. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, not, not always, actually. Um, there are some really interesting records from Mesopotamia where we have women writing to their husbands and sons about their textile businesses. So we know that women were running businesses in like 3200 BC. Yeah. So we have writing where, where like, I'm thinking of one um, piece of writing where, where a woman is sort of chastising her son, saying, when are you going to bring me my profits for the textiles that you've been selling in town for me? And this is roughly 3200 BC? I think about 3200 BC, yeah. So women have been entrepreneurs for kind of as long as we've had records. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. I mean, we think of, you know, history progressing in this like linear fashion from disenfranchisement to franchisement, you know, in- increasing inclusion. But I think that's more like a spiral. You know, we have different times when people were various, varyingly, you know, included in, in economic activities. Fascinating. And so we've had bias, but not bias as we have it today throughout humanity. But the particular kind of bias that leads to the racism that we in the United States today generally, uh, I want to say understand, but this is probably not a good proper word, are aware of, leads back to the decision around slavery. And the as a result, the decision to make one class or one type of human being above another. And therefore, you know, it's interesting how we relate to animals by way of analogy, right? Hmm. We've decided that uh, we're going to treat dogs and cats one way. We've decided that we're going to treat whales and dolphins one way. And we've decided that we're going to treat uh, chickens and cows and uh, tuna a whole other way. And that's because we've created some kind of a mental context, a system of value and trade-offs where we get comfortable saying, it's okay to eat tuna, but you, you can't touch a dolphin. Isn't that interesting? Yes. These categories, we, we give these categories a meaning, and then it dictates whether we can kill one category or not. 
Right. Like why, you know, we would we would shrink at the idea of someone killing a pet cat, but we we have no problem killing pigs or cows or chickens or absolutely. Well, my wife and I have five uh, hens in our in our little garden and we adore them. And uh, the eldest of them are now uh, nine years old. And they're wonderful pets. They're, I mean, they're every bit as wonderful and loving and personality rich and funny and silly and a source of joy as a dog or a cat. And Abigail, one of them, by way of example, likes to do two things with me. A, she picks fights with me. <laughs> and, and I'm roughly 200 pounds and roughly six feet tall. And she's roughly seven pounds and roughly not very tall. <laughs> but she has probably a sharper beak than you do. She has a much sharper beak, and uh, you probably can't really see it, but normally my hands are all cut up because she, she, we have to fight multiple times a day. And then the other thing she wants to do is she wants to hang out. So, like, I hold her like this. Sometimes I do podcasts with her, just sitting here like this. <laughs> and I can have a nap in the garden, and she'll nap on my chest, and I'll wake up 20 minutes later, and she'll be there. And so, anyway, my point is we've made these categories – so that it's okay for us to treat one living being as one way mm-hmm. and a- another living being as another way. Mm-hmm. And of course, we do this not just with all living beings, we do it with human beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what's so important about this is that those categories are culturally defined. They, they you know, Cultures decide what categories matter in that in that particular culture. And in another culture, those categories might not matter at all. And not only are the categories culturally defined, but what those categories mean is culturally defined. I mean, I had an experience where I learned a prejudice from scratch as a teenager. And it was because a particular category of people had never I'd never encountered this category of people before. What happened was I was a a foreign exchange student in France in high school, and I was living with a family and going to high school with this, you know, foreign exchange with the with my, you know, host host student. And one day I was at the high school and I started to talk to a group of French students who I didn't know. And we hung out at lunch and chatted and they were very tolerant of my very poor French. And we talked about music and movies and we had a really great time. And I thought, oh, you know, great. I have this new group of, of French friends that I that I didn't know before. That afternoon, when I came home and started spending time with the host family and my host student and friends, I learned that I had been hanging out with, quote unquote, Arabs. Now, I had I grew up in. Green Bay, Wisconsin. I'd never encountered someone from, you know, a person of Arab origin before. I didn't know the category. I had no associations. I thought the, the, these students were French students, like all the other French students. And as and I didn't I think what's important is I didn't detect any difference at all between these students and any other French students. Once I learned that this category existed, I started to notice differences. I could tell that I was absorbing the prejudices of that culture. I'm reminded you must know this song from Avenue Q. 
everybody's a little bit racist. I'm fam- I'm familiar with the song. I, I haven't seen Avenue Q, but yes, I've heard of the song. It's It's a very funny song. And of course, everybody is a little bit racist. And so in this case... How are you being taught these bi- these negative biases and how are you sort of accepting them? That is to say, other people's thinking about this group of people. How, how is it you are? How is it we do that as human beings mm. when when we don't have a filter? Because if you look at children, children aren't racist. Mm-hmm. Right. You put different kids together of whatever the difference is. And best I can tell, I'm no child psychologist, but you put a bunch of five-year-olds together and they're going to do what five-year-olds do pretty much on their own. And that's going to be that. And so mm-hmm. it, it seems to me this is learned behavior. Absolutely learned. And so how is it we will allow ourselves to have our, our waters muddied by somebody else's bias and then accept them as our own and then project them on others? Mm-hmm. Well, we learn it in a few different ways. We learn, we certainly learn verbally from our parents growing up, from our neighbors, from our school, from our media, from our neighborhoods. We also learn non-verbally. So we watch what the people around us do, how they act, if they move away from somebody on the bus, if they, you know, grab their purse a little tighter walking down the street. Children observe all of that kind of stuff. Another way that that this information gets transmitted to children, though, that I think is is really interesting is through categories and through labeling. So the more we describe groups as as very different from one another, the more we segregate groups, the more we show that these groups are distinct and different. And yeah, well, just uh, the, the more that we use labels, the more children began to essentialize those groups. So in other words, the more uh, we start to see those groups as having something fundamentally in common, all the members of the group having something fundamentally in common. And once that's in place, it becomes very easy to start stereotyping and to discriminate. Okay, here we go. So some of those are, you know, stereotypes exist for a reason, right? And so there are differences amongst cultures. So uh, I'll give you an example. My uh, partner in Category Pirates, Eddie Yoon, is of Korean descent, and he grew up as an American uh, on um, in Hawaii. Hmm. So when he and I talk about our backgrounds, our childhood, our families and the like, my family is originally from Scotland, then to mm-hmm. Canada, and of course now I live in the United States. My my cultural background is radically different than his mm-hmm. Scottish food versus Korean food. By the way, for the record, I take the, the Korean food, <laughs> Scottish food, not so much. Generally, there's a couple of there's a couple, but generally not so much <laughs> on the cuisine and, and the histories of the countries and the culture and the music and, and, and you name it. And so there is an understanding of his background and his culture that I will never access the way a Korean would just like there's a background of my culture mm-hmm. that he couldn't access the way a Scottish, a heritage person who moved to Canada would. And so, uh, and there's some power in that. I'm very interested in his culture. I'm very interested in his food. I'm very interested in his parents and I'm very interested in how it was after the war there and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And 
And in spite of the differences, which are vast, of course, we connect on a lot of the core things that make us human. We have shared interests in certain things. Mm -hmm. And so we relate to each other as brothers from another mother. So there are these radical differences. There Mm -hmm. are stereotypes you could make about Canadians or Scots or Hawaiians or Koreans because he and I are a mix of some of the, all of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and those those stereotypes would be true. You know, Hawaiians eat a lot more spam than non-Hawaiians, right? And you can make that mean whatever you want to make it mean, mm-hmm. but that's a factual statement. And spam is a part of the culture in Hawaii that it sure isn't in Scotland. And so there are biases that are based on mm-hmm. cultural differences that seem to be, for lack of a better word, true. And so what's the difference between sort of understanding and appreciating uh, a different mindset, a different mental framework, uh, different categorizations of different behaviors and and, and so forth, different values mm-hmm. versus what you and I might refer to as a negative bias or, or, or an ism of one sort or another? Yeah, it's a good question. And absolutely. I mean, Dutch people are stereotyped as tall and Dutch people are on average pretty taller than you know many other people. So absolutely, there are some that have some element of truth. You know, I think where we run into problems is when I, let, let's just take you and me for an example. I encounter you and I, I don't know you. And because of the categories that you belong to, that I recognize, I have stereotypes that I've that have been stored in my memory that I've absorbed from culture those are living in my memory and as we talk as we connect as we um, engage with one another those stereotypes may begin to influence the way that I'm interacting with you they may begin to influence how I see you how I feel about you how I what I predict you're going to do next and when that causes you harm when that violates my own values because maybe those are negative stereotypes or there's something in those stereotypes that is then causing me to devalue something you say or to to not believe you to not give you the benefit of the doubt or you know even to dislike you or you know there's so many different ways that stereotypes can harm when that starts to happen that that's what we're talking about when we talk about harmful unconscious or unexamined bias, because these stereotypes are starting to influence our interaction in ways that I might not even be aware of and that might violate my values. You know, I want to be a fair person. I want to be a humane person. I want to treat you in an egalitarian way, but I might be acting toward you under the influence, if you will, of these inherited ideas that that could harm you and could harm our relationship. Yes, thank you. So so let's play here, maybe. Before we meet, I consume your work, read your book, listen to you on some podcasts, see your digital presence and so forth. And I sort of, as a result, and I've heard your voice in a podcast. One of the things I love about podcasting is the person you're listening to, and I know this is going to sound corny, but they're in your body most of the time because they're in your ear. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's so much more radically intimate than, say, watching television, mm-hmm. generally. And you could be listening to it on a speaker, but for the most part, people listen to podcasts, they're inviting you in their body. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I do all those things, and I have a pretty good sense of you. And there are biases that, of course, I plug in. Mm-hmm. I talk to a lot of legendary writers. And I have spoken with many 
top journalists, researchers, and scientists. And so you are a journalist who's clearly taken a tremendous amount of effort into this work that you do. And I know this is your first book. And I understand as an author, I understand what that means, et cetera. And so I plug and, and of course, you're a white female. You're in Wisconsin, Minnesota, but close. Oh, sorry. I meant Minnesota. Ah, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, whatever. See, there you go. That's that. That is a huge bias. The bias of, about flyover, quote unquote, flyover country. Yes, go on. No, but exactly. So, so we immediately plug, like, how many data points do I plug in about you or right. you plug in about me even before we see each other and then we see each other and then I plug in a bunch more data points as you do about me. Right. And I would be right about some number of them and I would probably be horribly wrong about some number of them and probably vice versa. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to some extent, you know, we can't just rely on the trillions of bits of data that come into our senses and, and try to create reality from scratch all the time. Like we need to use shortcuts to some extent. We need to use categories so that the world is legible to us, you know, in a in a in a functional way. But what happens so often, and th this is what's really harmful, is that all of those stored stereotypes, beliefs, associations create kind of a distorting lens. And what they can do is they can prevent us from actually seeing the person in front of us, from actually engaging with the true, complex, nuanced utterly unique being that we have the privilege of being in an encounter with. And it can just, because it's this distorting lens, it can, uh, you know, it can Im impede our ability to form a relationship. And so on one hand, we use this as shorthand, right? And part of it, I would imagine is primordial, right? We're assessing each other. Is there a sense of danger here? Uh, mm -hmm. et cetera. Okay. So there's no physical danger. Okay. Well, is there a sense of intellectual or emotional? Am I, am I welcomed by you? Uh, vice, so we're, we're doing that. And you tell me, I would imagine that for me to say, I treat you the same way I would treat a man or a woman of a different racial or cultural background would be asinine. That would be an asinine thing to say. That I, there's no question in my mind that there is some primordial thing that happens beyond the kind of fight, flee, or freeze. There's a, there's a learned cultural behavior about how me as a man, my size shapes who I am. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm probably physically bigger than you are. Obviously, my voice is different. I don't have hair. You have hair, you know, et cetera. And so there are things that I will do unconsciously as a man to try to connect with a woman that I'm just meeting that will be different with a man, with another man that I was just meeting under the same circumstances. Won't there won't there be? Well, I, I, I'm interested in following this a little bit. Can you do you have a sense just thinking about your conversation with me or, or other women and conversations with men in a similar context. I mean, if you're comfortable sharing it, like, do you have a sense of what those differences might be? Can you put your finger on any of them? Yeah. I. So in my mind, the word that comes to my mind is accommodations, right? When we're trying to connect with somebody, uh, I'm trying to figure out where you are, who you are, so that my transmitter 
has the best chance of landing at your receiver in a way that's powerful and positive. Mm -hmm. And so I I, I don't know off the top of my head. I, I don't think I've sworn yet in this conversation. So, so I'm just surfacing what is unconscious to the conscious. Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. something about you that has not had me swear right now. I <laughs> swear a lot. Um, so I, I don't know why that is. I'm just thinking this completely out, out loud with you. Yeah. But for some reason, Jessica, I haven't sworn. That might be because I'm trying to create a, as, as much of a welcoming and comforting environment. And that might be associated to a bit more feminine energy energy than male energy. Now, at the same time, I've had women come on who are, are different in personality type and different in the way they express themselves, who I'm swearing with in the second sentence. So I'm not sure how different it is. Maybe here, I'll give you one that I know for sure. If we were in person and we met physically in the IRL, as we say, <laughs> if how we greet each other mm -hmm. as a man I've sort of been tuned to uh, let the woman sort of dictate how that greeting interaction mm -hmm. is going to take place. Mm -hmm. So are we going to shake hands? Are we going to fist bump? Maybe, you know, during COVID, some people didn't want to do anything. Maybe some people still feel that way. Mm -hmm. And and the other one, interesting to me, I'm generally a physical person. And so I'm a huggy person. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I learned very early as a boy w with women was you sort of let the woman sort of dictate how the hug's going to go down, right? Are we going to do the side hug? Are we not really going <laughs> to air hug? Or are we going to give each other a bear hug and a big kiss to go with it? If we're going to kiss, are we going to kiss on the mouth? Are we going to kiss on the cheek? Et cetera, et cetera. There's all these things. And so I will be, let's say, more sensitized to that physical interaction uh, with a woman than with a man, for sure. Yeah, you know, the, the, I think the first time I realized that I was interacting with men and women differently was about 20 years ago. I was at a conference and this was before kind of the notion of transgender had really permeated the culture the way it has now. And I met someone who I could not immediately identify as belonging to the category man or the category woman. And I felt this sense of paralysis in our conversation. And what I realized was that I didn't know which of my default settings to use. Like, am I using my I'm interacting with a man default settings or my I'm interacting with a woman default settings? And it was like this, the system got jammed and it was so illuminating for me because I didn't realize that I had these two separate, totally sort of separate systems that I was using. I didn't realize it until the system didn't work anymore. And I was, you know, like I had to like make something up from scratch. But, it, it, you know, what it taught me was like, oh, yeah, I have I just I automatically jump into a different mode, probably a different register, different diction, different way of interacting. Absolutely. So here, here's the thing I'm totally fascinated by. Let me give you a, 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 for, a for instance. So for the most part, I'm mostly retired from being an advisor and investor in businesses, but I still do some of it. Mostly I'm focused on writing and podcasting these days. Uh, and, and one of the last business deals I did was I got introduced to the founder CEO from a venture capitalist who's on uh, this person's board who I've known for a while. 
And uh, this person, the, this founder CEO was aware of my work. I was aware of their company and aware sort of of this person's background and reputation. Not, not super close, but I knew this was a res- highly respected entrepreneur. We get introduced by a very important person who we both have a very close relationship with. And there's a task at hand. And here's what happens. We end up agreeing to work together and sort of the mission and the economics. And given the timetable this entrepreneur is on, we need to get on it immediately. And in order for the our sort of legal agreement and the economics to happen, you know, that's a three-week cycle, four-week cycle, something like that. You know, lawyers only move so fast and there's this and there's that and, you know, approvals of this and that and uh, all normal things. However, the timetable this entrepreneur was on was such that if had we waited those three or four weeks to get that stuff buttoned down and to actually have a signed agreement, it would have cost us a lot in terms of the timing that he wanted to get to. So in our first conversation, given our shared backgrounds and given our both having had, you know, multi-decade careers in the entrepreneurial software space and the relationship and the sort of understanding of who each other were, we were able to a uh, verbally agree on a deal very quickly Mm -hmm. and have enough pre-built trust because of those, let's just call them biases Mm -hmm. that, I'll speak for myself. I had no trepidation about going forward. Mm -hmm. And in this case, Jessica, I actually delivered to them one of the biggest pieces of the work that we were going to do together before the contract was even signed. Mm -hmm. So Theoretically, they could have taken all of it. There was trust. Correct. Mm -hmm. So in a situation like that, are biases helping us Mm. or what allows for that, which I would describe as positive as opposed to a negative bias or as a racism. So where is this sort of shared sort of background? How do I figure this out? Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's one, there's, there's an interesting, and I don't, you'll have to tell me if this applies to your situation. There's a very interesting, um, well-studied phenomenon called homophily which means literally love of the same. And it describes the fact that we often are, we gravitate to people who kind of remind us of ourselves, who maybe belong to some of the categories, maybe dress similarly, maybe have similar backgrounds, went to the same school, same hobbies, you name it. You can see this if you just go, you know, walk in a park, you see friends walking together and sometimes they even have like the same outfit on, you know, people are very drawn to people who remind them of themselves. And so this plays out in the workplace a lot. You know, people will be drawn to doing deals with people who are seem feel familiar. You know, they recognize them. And so I have to ask you, you know, in this case, was this this person that you sort of had these positive associations with and you had this kind of trust and you were able to do things quickly? Was this someone who you would say was there a was would homophily be a word that could describe that? Yes. Yes. And had this person been pick your difference, Mm -hmm. you know, had they been from a foreign, an entrepreneur from a foreign country with a different culture, uh, not so much sex, although if they'd been from a foreign country of a different sex, for sure. Mm -hmm. But it was the shared background and experience in this domain called tech entrepreneur Mm -hmm. that did it. And 
And look, I, I don't fucking know. He's a white dude and I'm a white dude and we're, you know, similar vintages. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, I've done lots of deals with uh, entrepreneurs of all sorts of stripes. So it's hard to unpack it. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely there's a combination of known reputation, connection via an important trusted person mm-hmm. and a shorthand as a result of those sorts of things that allows a deal like this to happen in a way that had he been from China or from Guatemala Mm -hmm. or from, I don't know where it just would have taken more time Mm -hmm. because there would have been, we would have had to work harder to connect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's when you look at the research about, um, you know, homogenous groups versus diverse groups. One of the things that you see is that homogenous groups have some advantages like, easier communication, less conflict. Things are just kind of smoother when everybody kind of is the same, you know, but there are downsides too. And not only are the, you know, downsides things like, well, you know, there's some kind of unfairness built into that in that, you know, someone with some different aspects of their social identity wouldn't have access to this kind of fast-tracked deal that you're describing. But there are also downsides to homogeneity in in that, you know, when you have a more diverse group of people, research shows, you get different kinds of thinking. So you get more creative thinking, juries that are diverse, consider a wider range of facts when deciding a case, consider more different viewpoints when deciding uh, a case. So there, there, there are, you know, there are real benefits that come from having you know, a more diverse group as well. But I think what you're pointing to is that there's kind of this stickiness, there's this ease that goes along with, you know, associating with working with people who feel familiar. And that, you know, we see that throughout, we see that throughout, you know, the working world in all sectors. So how do we, if if our goal is to be a good person, Mm -hmm in the world. Uh, on one hand, there's some real positive to that, and it makes a lot of sense. And on the other hand, if we do everything that way, then you wake up and everybody in your world looks and sounds and exactly like you are. And you're like, well, what are we, a bunch of Stepford wives here? <laughs> Something's gone horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some magical line here, I assume we're trying to walk, where where the, the, the being with people of shared background, shared experience allows us to connect quickly, get to work quickly this, in a business context have some velocity and so forth and so on. But if we do that every time over and over and over again, we wake up in this, in, in a world that I don't think m- many of us, certainly myself don't want to live in. And so how do we walk this, this, this magic line, Jessica? Mm-hmm. Well, gosh, I wish I had like a, a, a five second answer <laughs> to answer. This is a tough, you know, it's a tough question. I think, you know, I think one thing that we really have to do is to be very aware of what's happening. So the fact that you're able to articulate what happened is very helpful because what I often hear is people will say, I don't know, there was just something about this person that I liked. They were just a cultural fit for my organization. So it just seemed, it just seemed like they fit. Well, what, what, what that means is this person checked these four boxes that are identical to my boxes and therefore this person has an advantage, you know, an unfair advantage over people who check different boxes. And so I think we have to really understand what's going on and be aware of the risk that, you know, that we all, that we can all fall into homophily pretty easily. Yes. And then I think we have to be really proactive. I mean, 
you know, one thing that I do in my own life and my own work is I I deliberately try to work with and seek out people who do not share all of my social identities. I just think it's more interesting. It's more fun. I learn more when I'm not with people who are a lot like me. But I mean, it takes it's it's like an extra step, you know, that that you have to take because the default, I think, is to, you know, is to fall into sameness often. And as I, you know, consume your work, uh, a message that comes through loud and clear is something that's been true in my life, which is a big way to break some of this shit apart is go have a beer or coffee with somebody. It's hard to hate somebody who's sitting across from you who's seeming to be a good human being, (laughs) even if you happen to disagree on Roe versus Wade or their different religion or or whatever the differences are. Yeah, I mean, they're... Absolutely. Like, I mean, the more, you know, along with this, this idea of homophily, there's this other concept that I find really helpful as I'm thinking about these issue issues, which is outgroup homogeneity. And what outgroup homogeneity means is that when we, when we perceive a group that we don't belong to, we tend to think that the people in that group have a lot more in common with each other than the people in our group have with each other. So we kind of see that group as monolithic, you know, somewhat homogenous. We see our own group as like miraculously diverse and nuanced, and we're all so different from one another and you can't pin us down, right? So one thing that is really helpful about getting to know people of a group that you don't belong to is that it starts to break down some of that outgroup homogeneity. And you start over time to see, oh, actually this group is just as complicated and complex and nuanced and full of different kinds of people that have nothing to do with each other or you know very little to do with one another as my group. So that that that's extremely helpful in breaking down some of these barriers. Uh, it reminds me of an experience I have on a semi-regular basis which is living in in the United States, tell somebody I grew up and came from Canada and uh, they'll say, "Oh, do you know Jim?" You know, and it's like um, you know, there's 40 million Canadians <laughs> or they'll meet a uh, Canada is a very diverse country, as I'm sure, you know, particularly in the more urban areas. If you go uh, Toronto might be, you know, the most culturally integrated city in the world. If not the it's certainly one of the. And so, you know, you'll meet somebody who isn't white with blue eyes and they say they're Canadian and they go and you look at them, and you go, no, you're fill in the blank. And you know, no, I'm Canadian. <laughs> I might look, however, but I'm also Canadian. And so we're all, all of us are members of these different groups, right? Like if you say, you know, I, I'm a member of some groups with some clear advantages, obviously, you just look at me and you could tell that. However, what you can't tell by looking at me is I'm also a member of some groups with some pretty serious disadvantages. And that's the case for many of us, is it not? Sure. I mean, we we all belong to many different intersecting groups. I think some of those advantages, you know, are more pronounced or more salient than others. Disadvantages are more pronounced or salient. You know, obviously, there are different kinds of disadvantages, disadvantages that have accumulated over decades or centuries versus disadvantages that have, you know, appeared in one generation. So it's a, it's a little bit apples, you know, apples and comparing apples and oranges. But yeah, certainly, I mean, we all we all contain multitudes, right? Like Walt Whitman said, I, you know, I contain multitudes. There isn't, there isn't just like one category that any of us belong to. 
And so is the answer to the question, the end of bias, really just actually spending time with people that you might have a bias against? I mean, is it, could it be Jessica that simple? Well, I don't think it's that simple. (laughs) I wish it were, you know, these, these entrenched stereotypes and beliefs and associations are so sticky, you know, they're so deep that they, it really requires kind of an ongoing effort to question them, to become aware of them, to combat them, to to work with them and kind of remake them. One approach that does work is something called contact theory, which is bringing people together of diff- a- a- across differences to work on a shared goal collaboratively when, and, and at equal status. So if you've got those conditions met, equal status, collaborative, shared goal, and it's sort of all generally under with has there's some kind of institutional authority that okays it that has been shown to decrease stereotyping and prejudice so it's not necessarily just a matter of have coffee with someone there's sort of specific ways you can structure those interactions to boost the you know anti-bias element and then there are a ton of you know a ton of other approaches that have been shown to change people's behavior which is why the book took so long to write. Because there are a lot of approaches that actually do change people's behavior for the better. Yes. Now, I was fascinated by your story about your article proposal coming in from your name versus a male-sounding pen name. Mm -hmm. Remind me what year that was, Jessica, how long ago that was you did that exercise? That would have been like mid-2000s, so... So in the mid-2000s, the same exact article that appears from a woman and appears from a man, the female gets rejected and the male got accepted. Yeah. So what happened for you when that happened? So so I, you're I think referring to one of the first national uh, magazine articles I got published in which I, you know, I'd, I'd submitted this piece under my own name with no success. And then in a moment of desperation, submitted the same piece using the initials JD uh, to see if that might work. And that the piece got accepted. I really didn't expect this to work. It was kind of just a, a desperate last effort to get this piece placed because I only had a short window of time when it would be relevant. And I didn't expect it to work. I was surprised. I was shocked, frankly, that that this actually worked. I thought this is like the stupidest, silliest, you know, trick. And it it worked. And I ended up using that byline for a few years afterwards, actually, uh, to start my journalism career. I found that it was more effective at getting responses from editors. Isn't uh, am I misremembering this? Is it also why J.K. Rowling is J.K. Rowling? I wouldn't be surprised. I actually, to be honest, don't know the reason that she chose. I th- I, th- I thought I heard that, but I, you know what? I, uh, I'm i not that smart and I drink a lot, so I might be getting it wrong. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think most women who use initials, J.D. Robb, or most women who use, you know, men's pen names, George Elliott, George Sand, you know, did it or do it because it's, you know, it's effective for publishing. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's what J.K. Rowling yeah, and I started podcasting before Me Too happened, 
And I'll never forget one of my dearest friends I've known for longer than I think her or I would like to admit. And we wrote a book together called Niche Down. Her name's Heather Clancy. She's a gift in my life. And we were talking about male-female issues. And she grew up as a journalist in tech. She's interviewed every big tech you know, leader you could imagine. Anyway, I, I remember us talking about male-female issues in, in the sort of uh, publishing tech workplace and her telling some horror stories of some things that had happened to her when she was a younger woman. And so we talked about this and I said to her, you know, is it any better today? And again, this was pre-me too. And she said to me, no. And, you know, this is not a hysterical person this is not a, a silly person. This is not a, a, a person who's full of bad or misjudgment. This is a very real, serious, smart, powerful person. And it, it stopped me in my tracks. And I sort of had a bit of the same experience when I heard this story of yours. I think, well, fuck, we're in the like 2000 whatever's now. Like, really? But I guess really. And so uh, we hear a lot about this patriarchy and I think it makes a lot of men upset and you hear a lot of uh, white dudes saying, you know, we're the most oppressed uh, around and all this sort of stuff. And so can you unpack some of this patriarchy? What, what's going on here and, and why are we not seeming to move very far down this path? Hmm. How much time do you have? <laughs> Um, I have as, I have as much time as you like, Jessica. That's why I invited you here. I told you I've been waiting to have this conversation with you for damn near 40 years. You know, it's, it's such a good question. You know, I can tell you that I've, I've had jobs, not in the far past. Uh, I've been in workplaces where very well-meaning men who identify as feminists describe their how much they value women and how much they appreciate women and how important women are to the work and how important feminism is. And these same men would do things like criticize a woman's personality when that personality was very similar to a a man's personality. You know, describe a woman as too uh, too abrasive or too aggressive when a man, you know, a, a, a male colleague was behaving exactly the same way. Attribute a woman's success to luck. This is something that I experienced a lot in the workplace. You know, I would succeed at something and then the response would be, oh, well, you got really lucky. There was something, oh, that you succeeded in that because of some, you know, deus ex machina thing or, you know, because of some kind of like special circumstance. It was like there was, you know, an attempt to figure out it couldn't be it couldn't be just pure talent. It had to be something else, you know, and that that I mean, that experience was like part of the reason that I wrote this book, because I was really trying to understand what the hell is going on. How are the, how are people who see themselves as fair, egalitarian feminist behaving in ways that completely contradict that? And what do we do about it? Like, what do we do about it if it's so entrenched that people can't even see it in themselves? I think what's happening is that as a culture, as a society, we have so deeply absorbed the idea of male superiority that we don't even see it. 
We don't even see it. Even women sometimes don't see it. And it comes out in our interactions, in our behavior, in our choices, in our performance evaluations. It just comes out everywhere. And that's, I think, what we actually have to face. If we really want to address this, I think we, we have to collectively face that. Thank you. That was great. Now, there's a lot more here. So on one hand, there's things that men need to do better on. I mean, clearly, clearly. And we need to be educated. And we need to be educated on the big ones and on the little ones. Because some of the little ones are pretty miserable too. You know, offhanded comments or whatever the fuck it might be. Some of the big ones, I think, hopefully are more obvious by now. So there, and that's probably a very real thing. Yes, there are things that men need to do differently. There's no question about that. Is that is that a fair statement? Yes, I would say that is fair. There are things that men need to do differently. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure I'm not nuts. I mean, you might be nuts, but not about that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, a man that I've grown to admire tremendously. He's been on the podcast. I'm, I'm working with him on his business. His name is Iron Mike Stedman, and he's a legendary entrepreneur in New Jersey. And he served our country uh, honorably as a captain in the Marines. And, and he's black. And his focus today is on helping what he calls BVEs, black veteran entrepreneurs, build their businesses through podcasting, digital marketing, and, and the like. Anyway, when some of this shit comes up, you know, I'll say to Mike, like, does this shit piss you off? Like the other day, I read some article about black people getting fucked over on home loans. So I sent this to him. I said, does this fucking drive you nuts? And I forget exactly what he said, Jessica, but it was something like, yes. And I can't get focused on that. I need to do what I need to do. I'm building my business. I'm supporting entrepreneurs. He's got a, he's a, he's also a boxing champion. He was the uh, boxer of the year in the military. I mean, think about that. He, he's a Marine who knocked out the boxing champ at uh, the box, the captain of the boxing team at West Point. Anyway, so he set up a nonprofit boxing gym in New Jersey that is free for kids who want to come do it because of the power of teaching kids boxing. Anyway, he's like, look, are there, are there, is there shit wrong and all that? Yes. I can't focus on that. I need to focus on my business, helping my clients, helping boxing gym. And if I do those things and I succeed in the overall picture of what's fucked, I will help move the needle. And so will all the other people that hopefully I'm helping, but I'm, I, I can't spend all this time sort of, you know, yelling into the wind about this. I need to get busy. Mm-hmm. So how do we figure out that sort of line between on one hand, hey, you fuckers need to change your behavior and you need to get your ass educated for shit to be different. And on the other hand to say, yeah, yeah, it, it is what it, it, the Patriot, but I'm going to just fucking make it work my way. And, and if I'm successful figuring out how to make it work and being a good example and having success will make a bigger difference than, you know, yelling with a placard. Mm-hmm. I think we all make that choice for ourselves where we want to focus our energy. I mean, one thing that, a question that I got a lot about this book was, well, don't you just, don't you just get so upset? Isn't this depressing? You know, isn't it like just, re- you know, the first third of my book is sort of about the consequences of bias and like how really harmful it is. And the rest of it is about what we do about it. But that first section is pretty grim. 
And I, I don't get depressed about it. And I don't, I, I, I get angry in as much as the anger fuels me to, to do something. And in this case, the anger fueled me to, to, to write this book, to try, you know, which, which looks at how this changes. And, and, you know, that for me was my way of doing what I could do. Cause I, I can't fix thousands of years of patriarchy. I can't fix hundreds of years of racism, but I, I can do this, this piece that, that I hope, you know, it opens minds and, and starts moving us forward on this journey. But I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, being, being consumed by anger about injustice can be totally paralyzing. So I, I don't think that that is necessarily helpful except in that it can motivate to, to do actual real work in the world. Yes. The other part of this that seems uh, present for me is a scarcity mindset. So if this is about dominance, dominance, the need to dominate, at least in part, help me here, Jessica, comes from, well, if there's only so much wood mm-hmm. and there's only so many you know, things to eat and so forth and so on. If you have it, I don't, and I'm fucked. And so I need to dominate you, Mm -hmm. you know, physically, economically, uh, socially, et cetera, such that I make sure that me and mine has a, our fair share or even better of a scarce set of resources. And so I need to oppress, suppress you so that I can protect and build me and mine. Mm -hmm. And it sits in this scarcity mindset. And that is part of a f- the foundations of some of this bias and some of these isms. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it comes from a scarcity mindset. And then there's also a certain kind of social dominance orientation. This is th- There's some really fascinating work by a wonderful couple of psychologists, Jim Sedanius and Felicia Prado, who who found that people are kind of have different orientations. Some people are really, really feel strongly about social dominance and really feel like the world is red in tooth and claw. We are brutal, you know, species vying for scarce resources. And other people don't feel that way. You know, what it kind of makes me think about is, this might sound like a little bit of a tangent, but it reminds me a little bit about uh, of the way the field of ecology has evolved. So in the 20th century, the field of ecology was dominated by this idea of competition, that species are in competition with one another and they're constantly vying for you know scarce resources. And eventually it became clear that actually all this, most species, living species, have some kind of cooperation that they're involved in also. Forests and fungi, be, you know, pollinators and flowers. And so this idea that we're just, you know, this is just a competitive world is actually a false idea. One of the reasons that it was hard to get rid of, that it, that it, that it stuck for such a long time, is that the scientists who were, the ecologists who were developing these theories themselves were caught in a competitive environment. They were competing with each other to to do this work. Bingo. So they were drawing from the conceptual frameworks that they had access to. 
And then as more sort of like different people came into the field, more conceptual frameworks became available and we were able to see the full picture more clearly. Well, thank you. That was awesome. And, and, and to just underscore the point, I mean, are we really so fucking stupid, Jessica? I mean, just look at humanity. When we fight, really bad, horrible things happen. And when we create a system that allows us to create, and there's, there's rules in that system, um, so we kind of understand how we're going to do something together, when human beings collaborate, they do legendary things. Mm-hmm. And nature is abundant, you know? Well, nature is radically abundant, right? Because we, we learned to farm 13,000 years ago, and that changed the nature of what a human being is, right? And farming required a level of collaboration and cooperation and co-creation, right, to create abundance. And if you look at what's going on, the fundamental change of the internet is it allows but, you know, almost anybody in the world with access to create digitally. And so there's this very clear thing that when human beings get together with shared mission, shared purpose, we change the future. And if you asked anybody alive today and you said, well, you could be alive anytime now or in history, when would you pick? You'd pick fucking now because life without penicillin, I, I had didn't live without life without penicillin. That would suck. Life without dentistry would suck. And, you know, for many people, life without TikTok would suck. And so, and so the point being, we, the reason we have penicillin and TikTok is because a bunch of us got together and we're creative and we're innovative and work together in a known system to create radical new value and ta-da. And so I guess my point is, Jessica, why are we so fucking stupid on these isms and biases when all you have to do is look around and go, when we cooperate and collaborate, we can do legendary things that rise all of us up. You know, I think part of it is social dominance, desire for dominance, desire for status. We we know that the that status is ubiquitous across cultures. Hierarchies exist. We humans seem to like to organize ourselves into hierarchies. And the maintenance maintenance of that status, I think, is is part of what's going on and why this is so hard to get rid of. Also, these ideas, as I you know, kind of mentioned before, they're so old, they're so entrenched, sometimes we don't even see the way that they're guiding our reactions and our behaviors. But I completely agree with you. I mean, I think if we can, I mean, and this is what I tried to do in the book, you know, show the ways that combating this benefits all of us, not just our, you know, workplaces and our neighborhoods and our communities, but our own relationships with one another. I mean, allows us to have deeper, more trusting, more meaningful relationships with one another. If we if we can understand that and commit to it, I I feel like we can move in a really positive direction. Yes. Now, before you confuse me with a socialist, um, <laughs> there's also a huge part of me that believes deeply in innovation, deeply in entrepreneurship, deeply in capitalism, and a system that does reward those who create value. You can argue about what's value and what's not, and why, why, you know, why does a basketball player earn what he does, and why does a teacher earn what she does? So you, we could talk about that value system. But that said, there's got to be some value system. Everything we value, we get taught to value. And 
if I'm somebody who quote unquote applies myself and creates new value and builds a company or builds myself into a contributing, what most people would call a contributing member of society and enjoys as a result, economic uh, rewards and status rewards. And also, frankly, the self actualization reward of, Hey, I fucking learned some shit. I tried some shit. I worked, I failed. I busted my ass. I worked with these other people and we did this thing and da, 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 and I achieved something and I got rewarded both in status and in economics and so forth. And like, we want that, right? I want, you know, the, this backlash against billionaires. Part of me goes, yeah, well, um, hey, you want to go through the pandemic without Jeff Bezos? Really? You want to go through the pandemic without Eric Yuan and Zoom? Really? Et cetera, et cetera. And so, so this, this incentive to create and to receive societal rewards as a result of contribution and creation the flip side, of course, is that's very important. And frankly, if you want to be a lazy fuck who does nothing, you know, and you want to start talking about some of these far socialist ideas, and many of us are upset about how much money the government's giving everybody away and printing more money to give more money away. And some of these things, at least somebody like me, sounds very anti-American. But at the same time, I want to be very empathetic and very caring and think we, not just I. And so there's this there are these lines again, Jessica. So how do we create a society that's empathetic and caring, but at the same time, hey, get off your fucking ass and do something? I think I think most people want to feel a sense of purpose and want to feel a sense of belonging and want to feel part of something bigger than themselves. I, I, I believe that. And so I don't subscribe to the idea really of um, laziness or or people sort of, you know, not getting off their butt. I think there are a lot of factors that contribute to behavior that might appear to be, you know, quote unquote, lazy or something from the outside. But so I, I think what we need to do is create opportunities for everyone um, as much as possible. And I'm straying, if you, if you smell burning rubber, it's because I'm straying very far out of my lane and that's my, you know, my wheels hitting the, <laughs> the median. But I think that you know, we need we I think, you know, a good society is one where everyone feels a sense of purpose and a, a place where they where they belong, where they can contribute in whatever way that is. I, you know, I have people in my family who have disabilities who who may not be able to you know, be the CEO of a company. But I think one of the problems in our society is that, for for many people, there is there, there there doesn't feel like there is a place where 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 they can participate and have a sense of purpose and belonging. So I think that's I think that's what we need to do. And I personally feel that people also need to need to have basic needs met so that they can pursue you know their own purpose giving activities. So I I fall on the on the side of of providing basic needs for people as well. I think that's really important. So that would be a little bit more on the lefty side of the equation, that, that society, and maybe you tell me if this is the right word, owes us a set of things. They owe us roads that work. They owe us a healthcare system that works. They owe us an education system that works. They owe us a set of uh, laws that are just and applied evenly, et cetera, et cetera. Yes? Yeah. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, I think that in order to have a functioning society, we ha we have to have those things. I don't think any of us... I certainly don't want to live in a society where 
where inequality is so great that we we have people who have nothing and then people who have more than they could ever spend in a thousand lifetimes. Yes, I think I think figuring out ways to create opportunities for as many people as possible is probably a very smart thing to do. And it's very clear there are many of us who try to find our place in the world and we can't find one. And as somebody like that myself, the only alternative is to bitch or make a place. And so as a, as a, pers- as a person who's a self-described self-starter and as a person who rejects the way that it is if it doesn't work and says, fuck it, if there is no place for me, I'm going to go make one. So on one hand, we want to try to bend society to be more inclusive and less biased. But at the other hand, how do we, you know, my fear is I saw this recently and I loved it. We are fast becoming a society where everybody has rights and nobody has responsibilities. Right. So I agree with you. Our society slash our government does owe us some shit. And I want to be part of helping with that shit because I think that's really good. I like the roads that we drive on. And clean air. Yes. Clean air is nice to have. Clean water. Right. And when I dial 911, I want somebody to show the fuck up. Um, I don't want it to be, you know, every person for themselves. Uh, and I want it. And I want a just equally applied justice system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, if I have this attitude that says, hey, America or the world owes me all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And unless I get it. You know, I'm going to I have an excuse to be a victim or a fuck up. That's sort of where I get lost a little bit. Mm-hmm. Have you heard people say that? Yeah. Yeah. We're getting a raw deal and they're, they, 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 they victimize themselves and their persona becomes a reaction to the victimizer mm. as opposed to their persona being, well, I see some injustice in the world. I want to tackle that injustice. And at the same time, I'm going to get on with having a legendary life, regardless of what obstacles are in my way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and those are two very different kinds of people mm-hmm. to me. And so one of the things that I fear is that we're a place where everybody has rights, nobody has responsibilities, and and sort of taking responsibility for your fucking self, for your life, understanding that America is a very unique place where we have an opportunity to do that that is completely unique from any place that I'm aware of. Um, And the fact that many Americans don't take advantage of the incredible opportunity that is the United States. You know, and so on one hand, yes, be more inclusive. And on the other hand, God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think that... <laughs> there there's there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, I think that I think, you know, yes, this is this is a the US is a is a country of enormous opportunity. You know, it's also a country where you have the opportunity to go into medical bankruptcy very easily. You have the opportunity to 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 lose everything because of one mistake or one illness or one cancer diagnosis. And so Yeah, I mean, there are enormous amounts of opportunity. I think there's also, you know, we have a society that has made it a lot easier for some people to take advantage of those opportunities than others. I mean, I'll I'll use myself as an example. I, you know, in order to write write this book, I dedicated myself full time to this work. I was able to sell the book to a publisher for an advance and I had health insurance through my husband. So those were huge advantages for me. I mean, I could, you know, I could look at my, you know, publishing this book as sort of like 
the story, you know, as, as you know, I'm a sort of like a self-made success story. And, you know, I just, I just, you know, took advantages of the opportunities in front of me. But if I hadn't been married and had the health insurance that my husband's job afforded me, I, I would not have written this book. I, I would, I would have been the exact same person with the exact same motivation, skills, talents, education, you know, chutzpah, ambition. But because of that structural difference, I wouldn't have been able to take advantage of those opportunities. And I think we have, we have to really take that seriously. Uh, and I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know why we made the decision to couple healthcare to our employment. It's like, it's a complete non sequitur in my mind. But it's insanity to me that people can't feel free to uh, have agency in their in their lives and certainly in their working lives, because if they want to go out on their own and do what you did, you can't do that in many cases because it's cost prohibitive just to deal with healthcare. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't agree more. Now, I, another one of my sort of favorite topics here is this sort of wokeism that we see going on. And we had a situation here recently in Santa Cruz where my wife and one of her closest friends were going to go volunteer do, to do some cleanup work in the community. And they went to this organization, community organization, setting this thing up, and they had to fill out a form and this and that. And on the form is we're over 40 pronoun types and over 40 gender types. And so help me with your interpretation of, of that. What's going on with the pronouns and the gender types? Well, I think one thing that's happening, it's an interesting question. I think one thing that's happening is that as a society, we are undergoing kind of a painful, some painful growing pains from the traditional sort of Judeo-Christian notion of male and female, that there are two genders, to a view of gender that is actually more historically present, that's more historically accurate, which is that there are many genders and that gender exists along a spectrum. If you look at the boogies of South Sulawesi, the culture in Indonesia, they historically had five genders. So there were males, biological males who had male roles in society, biological females who had female roles in society, biological females who had male roles in society, biological males who had female roles in society, and then a fifth gender, which was a union of male and female and actually seen as very close to the divine. Because in that cosmology, the godhead was the union of male and female. And so people who joined male and female elements were seen as closer to God, which I think is a beautiful you know, a beautiful and helpful way of, of thinking about it. But the, we're in tough growing pains right now because our much of our culture isn't used to thinking about gender in this more capacious and I would argue more historically kind of consistent way. And why does it make some people so angry and why does it make some people cry tears of joy that there's, I forget the exact number, but, you know, 47 different pronouns on the volunteer form? in Santa Cruz, California. Um, well, I, 47 is a, I would like to see that form. I, I, I don't know what the actual number was. It was high in the double digits. Right. Uh, so, it, it, and it, yeah, so. I mean, it may, why, do, why does change make anyone uncomfortable? You know, change is hard. It's threatening. Change feels very threatening. The unfamiliar feels threatening. And I think it it is upsetting to people who who have a strict, strict idea of, of, you know, how the world should be 
and that, you know, gender is a binary and um, sexuality is, you know, sort of concrete and well understood. It's upsetting to think of these things as more fluid and maybe existing outside of categories, maybe existing more on a spectrum. And I think to answer your question, I think the people who feel really joyful about it and relieved are people who have felt like there was no place for them before this. I mean, I I have someone very dear to me in my family who really struggled with not feeling like there was any place for this person because this person didn't really fit either category. And that's an extreme. I mean, we can all y- y- I'm sure you've had a, an experience of not feeling like you fit or not feeling like you belonged. It's extremely painful. Uh, absolutely. And, and I have a, a transgender female niece who's 20, I don't know, two or three. You know, she's been through a whole lot and, and was not in a good place. And luckily today is in a great place. And so, look, I'm, I, I got all kinds of room for different. Have as many fucking pronouns as you want. I, I personally don't really care. I find it a little weird. And my, my concern, is, and by the way, I, you know, Hunter S. Thompson, when the going gets weird, the word turned professional. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I got a lot of room for weird. The thing I wonder about is it, it's so far so fast that it's alienating some meaningful percentage of the country whether it's because of Christian values or the other one, I think it goes back to a scarcity. You know, why are some people anti-gay marriage? They don't want gay people to have the same rights that straight people have, right? So they're trying, again, they're trying to create a dominance hierarchy of some kind that says, well, non-gay uh, people can have this and gay people can't have this, right? Um, and so to me, that goes back to a scarcity mentality, that said, I think when, when some people see, you know, double digit pronoun choices, they go, this is going too fucking far. This is ridiculous. Or, or when it goes further, which is, I'll, I'll give you this one. There are people today that say to me that I am being a whatever, fill in the blank, negative, because I don't identify myself as a cisgender man mm-hmm. or that I don't have my pronouns on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And the reason I don't have that stuff is I understand what it's there for. It's there to show acceptance. What's the pronoun for? If you're not an asshole, you're awesome. <laughs> no, what, what, what is that? Right. And why do I have to say I'm a cisgender man? Can I just say I'm a fucking man? Mm-hmm. So a there in, with the people who have a scarcity mentality, they're afraid that, all of these accommodations and opening up and acceptance and making room for threatens them from a scarcity perspective. And then B, some people say like myself, fucking do whatever you want. But do I really have to say I'm a cisgender man? And then there's a t-shirt that says pronouns, none, please never refer to me. Um, Yeah. You know, I think that, I think that sometimes these language concerns can be a a proxy. You know, I think sometimes I'm kind of, I'm sort of thinking out loud here, but there's a, you know, in certain communities, there's a lot of focus on using the right language for, for reasons of respect and inclusion. And, you know, whether that has to do with gender or race or sexual orientation or different group, you know, whatever, whatever the group may be, there's sometimes a lot of emphasis on language and uh, importance to language. But I've also spoken to people who are scholars in these fields 
who have said, I actually don't care what you call me. What matters is how you treat me. And I am more in that camp. I, I feel like what's the essential thing here is how are we relating to each other as humans, as precious, unique, infinitely complex living beings? And what is the quality of attention that we are giving each other? So I don't care what you call me. I care how you treat me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But other, you know, I, I also totally under, you know, I, I respect and understand other perspectives on this. But I think, you know, I think what, what's really important is how do we, yeah, how, how do we treat each other in ways that, that respect each other fully, yes. you know, and that's deep work. That's hard work. That's harder, I think, than, than using the right word. Well, and I, I think on this one, to me, it's pretty simple. It's what does that group of people want to be called? Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a little boy, my mother bought me a toy made by Mattel called Negro G.I. Joe. That was a toy in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then black people were called black people. Mm-hmm. And then for a while, they wanted to be called African-American mm-hmm. people. And now it seems to have tilted back towards black. And I, maybe you can use both. I think you can probably use both. But most of my black friends say they want to be just called black. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. I'll call you whatever the fuck you want me to call you. <laughs> you get to decide. Another language change that I think is a very powerful one. We've had some of the top homeless experts in the country on the podcast, and homelessness is a topic I care deeply about. We have a huge problem with it here in California. And we used to call them homeless people. Mm-hmm. And the point there, as I understand it, is, well, we don't call people with cancer, cancer people. Mm-hmm. So the language change is people experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. And to some, that might sound like wokeism. But to others, it's kind. Mm-hmm. I find that to be more kind than woke. Mm-hmm. I would agree. At the same time, if at the store, you help me at the store, and I look at you and you look exactly the way you look, and I say, thank you, ma'am, I'm trying to be polite and courteous. And the fact that thank you, ma'am, might be considered today offensive to some because of the use of a identifier around somebody's sex is considered offensive, okay, you sort of start to lose me there. Now, if you say to me, by the way, please don't call me ma'am, call me cubba flubba wubba wubba, I'll call you cubba flubba wubba wubba, I don't give a fuck. But the generally accepted societal approach to say ma'am as a polite way of dressing a woman or sir as a polite way of dressing man, I don't know why that got to be so controversial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think if you ask most people, they would say that I, I think it's, it's it's I would hazard that it is a small fraction of people who would be deeply offended by a kind, polite person accidentally using the wrong name. I just I just I, I think it's a little bit of a tempest in a teacup. I just don't see that as being such a huge problem. Maybe it's magnified on social media, but in day-to-day interactions, I think if, you know, if we treat each other with respect and dignity and care and love, I, I, I just believe that that's what actually matters. Yes. Is there anything else that I need to learn to be a better person and a less biased person and a more kind and giving person without turning myself into some kind of a mushburger who's a communist? <laughs> you know, mushburgers are delicious. 
What else? Oh, by the way, it, smash burgers are my new passion. I will have you know, I'm all about the smash burger. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, to me, this what this really comes down to is qu- the quality of attention. What is the quality of attention that I'm that I'm bringing to a particular encounter with another human being? I think, you know, if we if we bring sort of what I just heard someone call exquisite attention, like really real presence and try to kind of let go and disregard these inherited ideas and really bring just pure attention to another being. I feel that that's a transformative experience and a transformative encounter and probably ultimately, you know, the goal of what I'm what I'm aiming for. I think it takes time. It takes effort. It's like learning a language. It's something that needs practice. But the benefits are extraordinary. Yes, which is why uh, around here we believe we need a breakthrough in real dialogue, the ability to do what you and I have just done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been a spectacular conversation. I would like to do a 27-part series with you, Jessica, if you'd be open to it, because there's actually a lot left on on my mental cutting room table. But I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Oh, gosh. I mean, we 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 covered a lot. I think this is no, I think this is great. I mean, we I, we didn't even really get into sort of the nitty gritty of how, you know, police be- behavior changes or how workplaces change or how teachers become less biased. All of that, I think, is really important. We didn't we didn't get to talk about it, but but there's a lot more. But do you want to do you want to touch on some of that now? I think we would have to talk for another hour and a half. So maybe we'll save it for another conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, you'll have to promise me that you'll come back because I, I, I deeply, deeply appreciate your work. It is, it is so seminal in our country right now. Just having the ability to fuck fucking sit down and talk to each other and stop yelling. Yeah. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Bless you. Thank you for your work, Jessica. And you are welcome back anytime. And please keep it up. Thank you. Well, there she is, the legendary Jessica Nordell. The book is called The End of Bias, A Beginning, The Science and Practice of Overcoming Unconscious Bias. And I enjoyed this book very much. I think you will, too. And uh, I want to say another big thank you to Jessica for joining us. Speaking of thank yous, we would like to thank you. Thank you so much for your time and attention. It means the world to me and to everybody involved with this podcast that you would invest part of your life with us. Our friends at Autranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. If you want a rapid uh, new website, check out atre.net and ask them about the rapid relaunch program. Our friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant if you need an assistant who's a real person, who's nowhere near you and never know, never will get near you, but will do a legendary job for you, check out bottleneck.online today. And my friends at flowkiosk.com are the leaders in iPad kiosks. They are how you engage digitally in a physical space. So check out flowkiosk.com. That's flowkiosk.com. And my friends at Shakeology make this incredible category of superfood dessert. And I've been going mental on this stuff. Imagine a, 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 a shake, a smoothie that tastes like dessert and is good for you. It's insane. And I love my Shakeology with my Malibu milk. 
So check out Shakeology.com today and MalibuMilk.com today for the world's first whole plant flax milk. Shakeology.com and MalibuMilk with a Y.com today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed, and um, this podcast contains information known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking, and one should not act on any of this information before you talk to your doctor, lawyer, shaman, accountant, uh, spiritual advisor, and, of course, category designer. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his work at jason.fyi. That's jason.fyi. Sarah Knox and Jamie J. do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon and the Bobus Brothers. RJ and EX do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record these oddcasts on squadcasts.fm. Don't forget that thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. Also, don't forget, Category Pirates makes a great gift. Go to Lockhead.com today, and you can sign up one of your friends or colleagues for Category Pirates. Uh, Remember, we will either have real dialogue, or we will have real violence. And around here, we stand for real dialogue. Uh, Listen to Leonard Cohen. Joan Jett was right. Please take two podcasts and tweet us in the morning. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Scott O'Malonic, editor of Stink, I mean, Inc. Magazine. Sorry, Scotty, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please be stay. Please, <laughs> you know, you got to learn how to talk if you're going to have a podcast. Be safe. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>